The year was 2002. Kelly Clarkson won the first American Idol. A Beautiful Mind was Best Picture. Nickelback, Ashanti, and Nelly were top of the billboards. The average cost for a gallon of gas was $1.61, and President George W. Bush gave his famous Axis of Evil speech. This was the time my friend and real-life exoneree Brian Banks grew up. He was a junior in high school and was a tremendously talented football player who was receiving a lot of attention from Division I programs. He was happy, had close friends, living those magical last days of childhood before real-life responsibility begins. Many thought Brian would make it to the NFL. After all, he was in the world-famous Long Beach Polytechnic High School, a high school that has produced more NFL players than any other in the country. Brian himself was classmates with four other young men who eventually made the NFL, Deshaun Jackson, Darnell Bing, Winston Justice, and Mercedes Lewis. His future looked very bright. That is, until he was falsely accused of rape by a female classmate who knowingly lied to the police. Not only did this lie derail Brian's football career and future, it sent him to prison for over five years. To make matters worse, Brian's accuser would be awarded millions of dollars for her lie. What you're about to hear is told by Brian Banks himself. I'm Michael Simanchik, managing attorney for the California Innocence Project, and you're listening to Brian's Story. Spent most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream won't somebody please hear my plea? Won't somebody please set me free? <laughs> so it's funny, man. It's some shit you just never forget. It was one of the one of the coolest times of my life before being locked up. I got locked up July eighth, two thousand two. My birthday was July 24th, 2002. I was going to turn 17. And July 4th, the holiday, 4th of July had just passed. And it was cool because four days before getting locked up, my mom let me have my first party at my house. It was a 4th of July party. She let me invite guys and girls over. And my mom was strict. She never let girls come over to the house. She just, that just never was her her thing, you know, and, you know, I'm 16 years old. I'm, you know, I'm taking care of business. She finally opens up the door and say, yeah, go ahead, have a little shindig, have some fun. And uh, it was cool. We had a great time and we had people over, we barbecued, we danced, we played music, we jumped in the pool when we weren't supposed to and got kicked out. We drove to the homie's house who was shooting fireworks and they were shooting illegal ones and we're you know, it was just one of those wild, cool, crazy nights. We had a great time. And it, I believe it was a Thursday because we came back to school the following day, which was a Friday. And we had to come back to school. Everybody thought that was dumb. It was summer school. And they made us come to school the following day after the fourth. We shot fireworks all throughout school that day. You know, brought the, the bottle rockets to class and we shooting them all throughout the quads, doing all kind of crazy shit. Going to the weekend, come back, getting ready for football practice on that following Monday. And I think I'm injured at the time. I wasn't practicing that day, but I had to be there for walkthroughs to be on the field. I think I call it like half dressed. And it's summer, it's hot. We're waiting for practice to start. 
summer school had ended for the day. It makes no sense to go all the way home and come back for practice. Practice is in about two or three hours from when school was out. So you hang around. You go to the burger down the street, Tommy Burgers. They call it Polly Burgers now. But you go down to Tommy Burgers, you get you a bite to eat. You know, we had another homeboy who had a house down the street. You go to his house, play video games. You try to find ways to kill time. So we come back to the school down the street and we sit on the quad in the middle of the quad, basically, and wait for practice to to start. And uh, while I was waiting there, I had a teammate of mine. His dad walks up to where we were sitting at the benches we were at, came up to us and said, uh, hey, B, uh, did you get in any trouble today or anything? I said, "Nah, man, what's going on? He said, I think I overheard the police say that they're looking for you as I was walking into campus. And I literally just was like, I kind of laughed it off, like, not me. Like, you know, I I haven't done anything today. And they said, he said, uh, well, just be sure, you know, or maybe check with your younger bro, because I'm I'm pretty sure I heard the last name Banks. So I said, all right, cool. I'll go check with my bro. I'll go check with him. He's in basketball practice on the other side of the quad areas on the other side of the gym. Brian checks in with his brother, who was also unaware of any trouble. Unbeknownst to him at the time, Brian had just been falsely accused of rape by classmate Juanetta Gibson. Earlier in the day, she and Brian were making out in a stairwell across campus from their classrooms. The romantic interlude was escalating when Brian smelled an unpleasant odor coming from Juanetta. Instantly, the moment was ruined for him, and he decided to make a discreet but immediate exit. Out of nowhere, I got like this, like this smell hit me. And it was this unpleasant smell. It was very strong. And it just threw me off. It was, you know, coming from her. Mm -hmm. One minute I was really into it. And the next minute it was just like, there ain't no way. And I played it off to the best that I could. And it was like, you know, ah, fuck, I got to get back to class, dude. I've been gone for a minute. Like, I'm about to get in trouble. And she got an attitude. Oh, whatever. I was like, nah, for real, like, don't trip. Like, we're gonna, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll finish this. Like, we'll do this another time, but I gotta go. And she was like, all right. And I like, remember I tried to say some, like, something funny, try to ease it and like make a joke out of it or whatever. And she like kind of smiled. So I felt like, all right, cool. Like, I'm out now. That was good enough. I'm out of here. You know what I mean? So I got dressed and I was like, all right, I'm going. I went out the door and left. And she was just standing there when I left. I didn't know where she went. I didn't know what she did. We didn't leave at the same time. I just left. I was like, I'm gone. Although neither Brian nor his brother were aware of trouble, the encounter with his teammate's dad made Brian uneasy. He didn't know of another bank's family. So who were the police talking about? It was all a mystery, and it left him with a bad feeling that he couldn't shake. So he decided to look around campus to see if he could figure things out. I'm not thinking nothing of it. But at the same time, I'm also thinking, why would... If they were looking for a Banks, if they were looking for me, why would they be looking for me? And as I, I'm heading back to the quad area where my homeboys were at, I see police cars. There's like an exit area right on the side of the gym headed back to the quads. So I hit this exit area because I see a few police cars and I'm like, let me look over here and see what's going on. I go over there. I sit on these little steps that were right outside this passageway. And uh, I remember having a hoodie on my head because I always wore a hoodie or a wave cap. So I got this hoodie on and I'm sitting down. I got my my arms wrapped around my knees, kind of sitting down with my feet up on the bottom step. I'm on a higher step. 
And as I'm sitting there and I'm kind of looking around, seeing what's going on out of the corner of my eye, I see a number of police coming out of the same area I just came from with a girl, which I don't even want to say her name. I'll let you throw that out there with a girl that I knew that I was just with earlier that day. And they were walking her, her mom, her sister out of the the school towards the police cars. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing it from the corner of my eye and it was just like, it was just, an, it was just like, as soon as I saw it, I just dropped my head down. Even though it's a matter of public record, Brian is still reluctant to use the name of his accuser, Juanetta Gibson. As you will hear, she came from a troubled family with gang ties and was routinely causing trouble or getting into fights at school. She didn't have a lot of positive influences in her life, which would continue to plague her into adulthood. Oh my God, I dropped my head. And I'm like, okay, fuck, what's going on? But I'm not thinking, there's nothing in me going, this girl's gonna say what we just did in the hallway earlier today was against her will. There was nothing in my mind that thought that because for, for a number of reasons, but there was just nothing in my mind that thought that. I was thinking that maybe she did something on campus that got her caught up and people saw us walking around together. This girl was known for fights on campus. She was known for bullying girls on campus. She was known for her mom being an active gang member and all kind of stuff in the streets, like a bunch of, she cussing out teachers and fights and every whole nine. So I'm thinking, okay, God, this girl probably did some shit. They saw me walking around with her and they assuming that I had something to do with it. So I say to myself, I'm like, fuck this. I'm not, I'm not walking up to these police. I'm calling my mom. Like <laughs> I'm calling mom. You know what I mean? But this was during a time where, you know, we didn't have cell phones. So I needed to get to the nearest phone ASAP. So the nearest phone was at my homeboy's house that I was just talking about who lived right around the corner. So they leave out of the passageway and they make a left down the parking lot. I stand up, turn right, and I start heading down the opposite side of the parking lot towards the baseball diamond where the baseball field was. They had the baseball team out there practicing. Soon as I get around the corner, I'm out of sight. I'm jetting ass. I'm taking off, running like diagonally straight across the baseball diamond, all the way through the field. I hop over the fence, run across the street to my homeboy's house, and I bust in the door. It's like 10 of the homies in there playing video games. Dude, what the fuck going on? Dude, what the fuck? You tripping? Like, they think it's somebody finna come in right behind me and something's about to happen. I'm slamming the door, looking out the window. They're like, what the fuck going on? I'm like, dude, I think the police are after me. Everybody start laughing. <laughs> everybody start laughing in there i'm like no nah, i'm for real i'm for real I, I think the police are after me and they're like dude for what i'm like i don't know i don't have a clue but somebody said they're looking for a kid named banks and i seen him on campus like yeah something's going on so i jump on the phone i call my mom i'm like mom i think the police are looking for me and she's like boy for what and i'm like i don't know and she's like well did you do anything on campus today that was out of the normal and like immediately I'm thinking like, I just made out with this girl today, you know, on campus, but I don't think we need to discuss that because that's not the issue here. So I told my mom like, nah, I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything. Dad would warrant the police to be here. And she's like, well, all right, well, you don't have nothing to worry about. And I'm like, nah, mom, something don't feel right. And she's like, okay, we'll just come home. Now, my mom was still at work at the time and I was calling her on her cell phone. And she was like, well, just come home. I'll be there in just a little bit. And, uh, you know, we talk about it from there. 
So I I leave my backpack at my homeboy's house. I'm like dapping the homies up. I've got to go. I'm not going to practice today. They think I'm crazy. They're like, bro, you really tripping. I take off. I run through the neighborhood, find the, the bus that I was supposed to get on. It takes me home. It pulled up. I jumped on and I go home. So by the time I got home, my mom's there. So she's asking me again, like, what happened? What happened? Like, mom, nothing happened today. Like, I didn't do nothing for the police to be looking for me. And she's like, you really tripping. Like, let it go. Like, you, whoever that guy was, that kid's dad must have overheard the wrong thing. Maybe there's another Banks on campus, whatever. Let it go. So I did just that. I, I let it go. I was like, cool, I'm home. If there was really a problem, they would have been here by now. I'm good. There ain't nothing going on. I get in the shower. I get out. It was summertime, blazing hot. I've been running. I'm running all through the neighborhood. I'm sweaty. So I jump in the shower, get out the shower, and I'm exhausted. I lay on the bed. I'm in my boxers. I didn't even, I was so tired and I didn't even change clothes. Like I just was in my boxers. I laid on the bed. And I fell asleep. Unfortunately, Brian was in for a rude awakening. It took a few hours, but Juanetta's lies were about to catch up with him. While Brian was asleep, the police made their way to his house to arrest him. And remember, Brian was only 16 at the time. I woke up out of nowhere. There was this knee that just like pushed into the middle of my back as I'm sleeping. I'm laying on my stomach. And there's this knee that just like starts to slowly push more and more and more and more into my back. And I'm facing the opposite way. My face is facing towards the wall and not towards the room. So immediately I feel it and I I jerk and like I'm like try to you know move up and they're like hey hey don't move stay still stay right there and I'm like what the fuck like <laughs> in my head I'm just like what like who what is I'm like what is going on right He's like put your hands behind your back so I'm like freaking out straight out of sleep and they put the cuffs on me yank me off the bed I'm like standing up it's like three cops in there they got the guns out they start barking out all these orders you know where's the clothes you wore today where's the clothes you wore today. I'm like, right there in the, in the dirty clothes. They like, where, where, where? So I, I'm in handcuffs. I kick the uh, the laundry bin over and the clothes roll. I'm like, right there, this stuff's right here. So they pick it up and put it into a bag. And they're like, find something to wear. Find something to wear right now. I'm like, looking for something to wear. I'm like, pointing at stuff with my feet. Like, okay, this, the sweater, this. And he's putting stuff on me, getting me dressed. I'm hearing commotion down the hall. Down the hall is my mom's room. So I'm hearing this yelling back and forth between her and these other people. And once they get me dressed, they start leading me out of the, the room. And there's my mom right there at the like screaming at the top of her lungs. And she just dropped to her knees, man. Mm. And she threw her hands in the air as if she was reaching out to God. And I mean, I saw the tears running down her face. And I'd never seen her like that before. So they rushed me downstairs, shoved me into uh, the uh, back of a police car. At the time, I was like six foot one. I remember just the space of the car just being crazy tiny. Like it was hot summer and they obviously had the car off for a while. <laughs> they shoved me in that car. That car was hot. The seat was burning like, you know, they got those plastic seats or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. 
burning me from the sun. My hands are like twisted up behind my back. I had never been in cuffs before. And uh, I'm sweating profusely. And I'm still kind of awake but asleep. And I'm in pain from the cuffs in the small space of the car. And I just remember like leaning my head against the glass of the police vehicle that's in front of me. I'm leaning my head there trying to find some space. And I can see these kids about four houses in front of the police car playing in an inside their yard. But they keep looking at the police car. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, I hope they do not come over here. These kids start walking over to the car and they get to the car and they put their hands over their eyes. Like, you know, when you want to look through the glare of a window and they just staring there looking at me like I'm a fish inside of a of a tank, you know, and I'm looking at them as I'm leaning my head against this glass, this plexiglass, and I'm turning my face to look at them out the window. They're looking at me through this glass. And that was the beginning of incarceration for me, of being on the other side of the wall. Up to this point, Brian had been woken out of sleep, yelled at by officers, and handcuffed. He saw his mom collapse from grief and been pulled out of his house and put into a blazing hot police car. As he sat and waited against the window looking back at his neighbors, he still had no idea why the police were arresting him. That was about to change, and Brian's world would suddenly start caving in. I didn't know why I was being arrested until two officers came out the house probably 10 minutes later, jumped into the car. We start taking off. I was living in Artesia, California. They came and got me from Artesia. Took me back to Long Beach. So when we drove off, that's what I'm saying. What I'm like, what's going on? Like, what? What are y'all? What's this all about? And uh, the passenger police officer kind of leaned his head back and gave me like the side eye. And he was like, yeah, man, you're being arrested for rape. He said it just like that. Like, yeah, man, you've been arrested for rape. I was like, rape. I'm like, what you talking about? Rape who? He was like, you're going to talk about it with the detective once we get over to the hospital. I'm like, hospital? What? What's that? Yeah, you got to do a rape examination. They start kind of telling me all this stuff. So it hit me, man. Like, that's when, like, it's kind of hard to explain, man. And it sounds really corny, but I think right when I heard that, like, it was kind of like my heart broke. It was kind of like, uh, it was like this, this sinking feeling, bro, where it's just like to hear something like that. You've been arrested for rape. Despite everything that he had been through, Brian believed he would be going home soon. He had a lot to return to. All of his hard work in football was beginning to pay off. He was receiving recruiting letters from Division I college programs. He had big dreams for his life, and it looked like he was going places. At least, so he thought. And I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm like, God is hearing this. He sees it. He sees that I'm shattered. I'm, I'm tore up. I went to court. They denied the bond and put the next court date out for a month and a half. And I went back to that damn juvenile hall. And as far as I knew, life was over. Like a month and a half was as, as bad as them telling me I had life in there at that time. You know, 16, football, in the papers, in the news, on TV, 11th in the nation as a middle linebacker, being recruited by every D1 school you could want to go to. 
God forbid that they hear about this within the 72 hours that I'm in there because everything that I'm working on is gone, mm-hmm. you know, but they put it out for a month and a half, man. And I remember I was like 45 days in jail. And so then you have to psych yourself out. Oh my God. Okay, cool. After you start, after the crying is over, after you kicking and screaming is over. Okay. Let me just do these 45 days and that's it. And then you go back to court and they say, don't come back for another month. (laughs) And that should happen. And then you go through about, you know, 15 court dates of the same thing over and Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. I sat in jail for an entire year before they told me what was going to happen to me, you know, in limbo. Brian would remain in limbo, not knowing his fate for a year. He was not convicted of anything, but he couldn't secure his release either. He was simply stuck in jail, waiting for the criminal justice gears to catch up with him. Finally, a lawyer hired by his mom shows up, and it was not good. Things were about to go from bad to a whole lot worse. I had a horrible lawyer. I had a really bad lawyer, man. What was done for me or what was not done for me, you know, really is one of the main reasons why I ended up going to prison. I had a lawyer who was recommended by a friend of my mom's. (laughs) And this is going to sound horrible, but the reason we chose this lawyer, this recommendation was because, quote unquote, she went to school with Johnny Cochran at USC. That was how much we were oblivious to the court system, to how good a lawyer is, to what kind of lawyer we needed. So my mom's friend's like, yeah, she went to school with Johnny Cochran. She's doing this, she's doing this. My mom takes this lawyer on. Black woman, mid fifties. Her name is Elizabeth Harris. A year going in back and forth, back and forth, asking for continuations and rescheduling and, you know, DA on vacation or lawyer on vacation or all these different reasons why, you know, things are moving forward. It takes an entire year to get to this point where I had been offered a deal. Anyways, within this year that I had been incarcerated fighting a case, they had offered me a number of deals to take. Before I went to adult court, they wanted me to take juvenile life. She said, if you plead no contest to one count of rape, they'll drop all the other charges. They'll drop the kidnapping charge. You'll undergo what's called a 90-day diagnostic at Chino State Prison. I said, what? Chino? Man, one of the most notorious California prisons that you hear about growing up, you know, Chino State Prison. She's like, yes, but listen, Brian, listen. You're going to go to Chino for 90 days. You're going to be interviewed by a psychologist and a counselor. And based off their determination, you're either going to get probation, three years in prison, or six years in prison. But I guarantee you, Brian, I promise you, they will give you the positive recommendation in your favor, and you will get to probation. I guarantee you, 90 days, you'll be home. If you don't take this deal and you walk into this courtroom and you try to fight this case, I'm going to let you know right now, they're going to find you guilty. And I'm like, why? Well, why would they find me guilty? I didn't do nothing. Well, because you're a big black teenager in their 
fighting a rape case and you're a football player, they're going to make an example out of you. So you're going to go in there and you're going to try to fight this case. You're going to get life. I'm telling you, this is the best chance for you. Take this deal. You will get to probation in 90 days. Man. So I'm in there. <laughs> I'm in there crying like a baby. I'm 17 and I'm all prayed out. Like I've been praying and I'm, I'm just asking and I'm begging and I'm hoping and I'm trying to claim it and I'm trying to put the positive energy into it and I'm trying to mentally, you know, make the, the future happen in my head. And I'm finally getting to the biggest day where I'm thinking I'm about to select a jury and go to trial. And this lady is in here talking about, don't do that. Take this deal. And, you know, I'm asking all the pleases and whys and are you sure? And, 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 and can I speak to my mom? And she's like, no, you can't talk to mom. You, you can't. I was like, why not? She's like, you're in adult court now. You know, you got to make adult decisions. You know, this is not some time for you to conversate with your mom. You have to make this decision. She knew if I would have talked to my mom, my mom would have said, hell no, we're going to trial because we did not do this. And so she's putting the pressure on me, pressure on me. And I'm just like, all right, I'll take the deal. You sure I'll get the probation? She's like, yeah, you're going to get that probation. And so I said, okay, let's do it. And I remember crying and crying. I tried to wipe my eyes up and shit before I went back into the holding cell with all the goons. And uh, I just sat there kind of just stuck before I went into the courtroom. Like, damn, I'm about to take a deal. Like after all of this shit, after a year of thinking I was going home, I'm about to go to prison for at least 90 days. One of the saddest things about the decision Brian made was that he had so little information to go on. His attorney had done little, if any, investigation. There was no biological evidence linking him to rape. The physical location of the alleged assault was not investigated either. Had someone done that, they would have seen it was impossible for something like this to happen without being noticed while classes were going on. And so Brian was facing charges for sodomy, rape, and kidnapping. Without a quality defense, doing an investigation, asking critical questions, and looking out for his interests, he was getting pushed into making a bad decision, one that would have profound consequences for many years to come. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part was that at 16 years old, I guess my lawyer didn't think that I was privy or mature enough or deserved to be told every single thing that was going on in my case. You know, it's kind of like she was babysitting where it was like, I got this, you know. But furthermore, looking back into my case, it's clear that you can see that there was no investigation that really took place in my case. This lawyer had my mom hire a PI, private investigator, through her office. And this gentleman came to visit me maybe twice. And I mean, I gave him so much information of people to talk to people to look into, friends to ask questions about, go look at this hallway, go look at this part of the school, go check out this part of the campus and you'll see it makes no sense. Go speak to these teachers that supposedly were in these classes with the doors open as I supposedly drug her down a hallway while she fought, kicked and punched me and no one heard it while these classrooms were in session. 
I gave them so much things to go and check out and look into. They never went to the school. They never visited the supposed crime scene. They never interviewed any of the friends that I hit them up and told them to talk to that I would later go and hit those friends up. Like, yo, have you heard from this private investigator? Nah, nah, I haven't heard from, I haven't heard from anybody. So there was no investigation. They literally just read the police reports and then they did a psych evaluation to determine whether you are fit or unfit for juvenile court. Anyways, during that determination, you get interviewed by a, a psychologist who determines whether or not you're capable of committing this, this kind of crime. And because I was non-apologetic, and because I was eager to get home to play football <laughs> and because I was, you know, everything but admitting to committing a crime. The report was he's very smart and very capable of committing this crime. He has no remorse and he's very self-focused. He just wants to go play football. <laughs> like, And I'm like. Yeah, I do want to go play football. Yeah, I'm worried about me. Yeah, I didn't do it. And I'm not dumb either. Like, <laughs> I don't understand what the fucking problem is right here. Like, right. you know what I mean? Like, right. and they, based on that, they said, we recommend that he goes to adult court. So based off that report, based off the police reports, that's all that my lawyer went with. They never investigated anything. They never interviewed wow. anyone. They never went to the crime scene. They didn't do anything. Take it one more step further. This is a rape case. The number one evidence in a rape case is DNA. This girl said that I had penetrated her, that I ejaculated inside of her. They asked her to describe the content she said it was white and slimy. It's in a report. She said she went down after we were together. She said she supposedly went back to the bathroom, which was down the other side of the hallway, grabbed a dry paper towel, wiped herself, threw it in a trash can, and went back to class. They did a DNA rape kit on her maybe three hours later. This girl had claimed to be a virgin, never had sex before, never been with a guy intimately. They found another secretion of another male DNA on her underwear. But it wasn't mine. I was excluded as a source of DNA. No DNA found. So within a span of three hours, all my DNA had disappeared, supposedly. My lawyer never used this evidence in court. Didn't wait for it to arrive in time before even trying me as an adult. She could have said, hold all of this shit up mm -hmm. in juvenile. Until we see the DNA, that's going to discredit a whole bunch of shit that this girl is saying. And she didn't do that. She just kind of let this thing keep going. I get tried as an adult. Shit's getting worse. I'm facing life in prison. Still no mention of the DNA. I get sentenced after going through a 90-day observation. She finally uses the DNA during my sentencing so that I can get the least sentence possible. After I took the plea. Wow. So ultimately, you go to the sentencing, what happens? So I do the 90-day observation. I'm at Chino State Prison. Crazy, crazy, crazy experience. People have no idea what's behind them bars, man. I saw a dude get rammed in his chest by a broken broomstick and airlifted out of the prison. He died. Jeez. I walked into the bathroom and brushed my teeth one morning and saw a guy slumped in the corner of the shower, stabbed up, bleeding out. Ugh. He just walk out like... 
It's just not my turn to use the bathroom right now. Wow. You don't make facial expressions. You don't say shit. You just go back, back to your bunk. You know, so anyways, I get through 90 days of Chino State Prison. I'm on the main line, um, general population. I get interviewed by a psychologist and a counselor during that period. Both the psychologist and counselor, both women, after speaking to me and reviewing my case, both independently said, I can't believe you're even here right now. You did not do this. You shouldn't be in here. It's clear. I can look at this, the inconsistencies, the DNA, like everything. You shouldn't be here. So the 90 day observation actually comes back favorable. Favorable. They recommended probation. One of them even said, I wish I could recommend less than this, but I got to go within the guidelines of probation. Wow. Both interviews were so good that I went back to my cell. And when I was in Chino, there was no visits. I couldn't have a visit, even if it was a non-contact visit. They weren't letting nobody come see me. And also, we couldn't even use the phone. So everything was through letter. Man, I ran back to my cell. I'm writing my mom, mom, oh my God, it's happening. I'm coming home. I am coming home. We got the recommendation that we need. I'm in there counting down the days to going home, counting them down. I'm like, this is it. I'm, I'm done. I'm in there just skating, you know, to the best of my ability in prison. I finally get in front of the judge and I'm like, here we go, baby. They got to see the favorite report. He got to go to the recommendation. That's what it's supposed to. That's how it goes down. Mm -hmm. He opens it up. He reads it, I guess, in chambers. He reads all the recommendation letters that I got from friends and family. I wrote a letter to him. Chambers, he read everything. Supposedly, he read everything. We gave him a stack of shit. We gave him character letters from everybody. I showed him. My lawyer asked my mom to give her my recruiting letters from all the different colleges. And we gave her boxes of recruiting letters. She Gave that to him to check, see everything. We had ministers, priests, everybody write letters. He's like, all right, I'm going to go look at all of this in chambers. I'll be right back. Man came back in eight minutes. Ugh. And he comes back, sits down. Like, all right, I looked over everything. Um, <clears throat> uh, does, the, the, does the mother want to say anything? Mother of the victim? The mom gets up there and puts on this show about how I took her daughter's innocence and virginity and didn't give her a chance and didn't let her choose how... You know, she was going to live her life. And I mean, like, just went off, went crazy, saying all this other stuff. And, um, you know, just to sit there and listen to that, knowing that you didn't do it. Right. To sit there and let somebody talk to you like that. My mom sitting on the other side of the room, my family there, to just let somebody say all that stuff about you, you know. Anyway, she sit down and judge like, thank you. Uh, okay. Six years. <laughs> like, I mean, he just. Threw it out there like he like he was not all right six years wow he gave me the higher term skipped over probation skipped over three years gave me six years i had never been locked up never been incarcerated never had priors never been arrested never seen handcuffs never never nothing never nothing no dna no witness just a story man literally just a story and that's all it took in a bad lawyer who didn't do nothing for me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed part one of Brian's story. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. 
Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. Join us next time as Brian's story continues in part two. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Simanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network.